Uh, a long list of speakers this year. We have Carl Natrum, who is from uh, St. Michael's Parish in Barbados. Brother Royce Powell, Phil Stansel from Milledgeville, Georgia. Al Williams from the Bronx. Uh, Jim Brooks, of course, right here in Chattanooga. Robert Swift from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Sherby Clark from Long Island, New York. And then Mark Tyson from right here in Chattanooga also as well. So we're looking forward to that. And then I wish you would write down somewhere and pray for the Bible study that we're going to have at my mom's house in Indiana, that that would all come off well. And, um, you know, there wouldn't be any issues with that, that I've got, Lord seems like he's opened the door for everything just to go smooth. And, um, I even, needed a whiteboard and uh, the Perry's had one that was in a box they hadn't even used yet it was on wheels so I'm just going to take that up there and I'll put it together and uh, see if I can't use that and do an introductory lesson on the kingdom what else I'm stalling these guys should be getting back here pretty quick for those of you listening in, if you didn't catch uh, Brother Bob Patterson's announcement, um, he had the bright idea, and I thought, well, that's a good idea. Um, if you need a hymn book, then if you would just uh, send us an email with your name and address and let us know, we'll send you one. And that way um, you can either read along or sing along with us if you would like. Uh, but we would be glad to do that. We don't have two or three hundred listeners, so it shouldn't be a problem sending out four or five hymn books. We'd be more than happy to do that. Also, I'm, looks like uh, we're getting close enough to where we need to have maybe a Saturday workday where we could do some fixing and cleaning around the church just in preparation for um, the conference. I know one item that needs to be taken care of for sure, and that's uh, painting the men's bathroom. We had to do some plumbing work on that, and, you know, the wall had to be messed up and tore up and replastered and everything. So uh, I know that needs to be done. If we could get a list of things, even you ladies, that would be great. We'll see if we can get those things kind of taken care of. Okay. I... um, want us to take a look at a, I don't know how well this is going to go. We're trying to going to do a word study on three words this morning, but of course they're, they're all cognates of each other. So they are related and see if we can gain some further sense of understanding or a better understanding of what often seems a very difficult word. And that's the word elect election or often translated as chose or chosen uh, in both the Old and New Testament. And so I want us to take a look at those this morning. And this is can be boring, I guess, in, in some sense because uh, it requires, this is, this is hard work. This is a lot of detailed study and I'm still lost in it to a certain degree and pursuing my way, digging my way through it, that is. Um, But I have some things to share that I think will be a help, encouragement, and a blessing to you. You know, it is very common to understand with certain uh, parts of the church about this matter of election and being elect, that it's something that God did Before the foundation of the world, he chose certain ones to go to heaven. And then he just passed over everybody else, just disregarded them. And I don't think that's the case at all. And I think our study of this word this morning, both Old and New Testament, will show us that. Of course, to do that, you have to look at how was this word... You know, when you start a word study and you do any kind of depth to it, you need to go back as far as you can to find out how was this word used. Well, 
one of the issues that you run into when you run into uh, Greek is it was around for a long time, several hundred years uh, before the time of Christ. And then, of course, you have to look at the Old Testament, Hebrew, to see how words were used there because in the Old Testament, the scriptures were translated into the Greek language about 250 years or so before the time of Christ. So that also becomes important to know, well, how did the Hebrew authors and translators, how did the translators view certain Greek words when they translated into Hebrew, from Hebrew into Greek? That all then taken together gives us a clue as to what the meanings of the words are by the New Testament writers. So it can be a long journey to determine what these words mean. One of the things we look at, of course, is you have verbs, you have nouns, and you have adjectives. And, of course, each one of those are used in different ways in different contexts. And so we have to look at each one of those as well. So I think they're all important. And I think when we get done with this then, hopefully today, that we'll see that there's some value for what it means to you and I as we sit here this morning, as we look upon our own standing before the Lord. I'm going to read some definitions out of some dictionaries, theological dictionaries. And of course, they're only as good as the men who wrote them. But those who have studied the words in various uses in classical Greek, which basically that means in secular Greek, how was it used outside the Bible? Or when we come to the New Testament and we look at papyri, then we're looking outside the use of the, uh, outside the New Testament into the secular world to see how they used a particular word. And really, when you bring them over into the Bible, into the scriptures, there's really no change. They use them in a consistent manner. So that's what we want to start off with first. Now, we go back to a guy named Plato. He's, he's pretty old. He goes back way before the time of Christ. Listen to this. He says, although these words originate in military vocabulary, by the time of Plato, eklegomai, which is the, um, it's the verb, which means to commission or to appoint, and the word eklektos, which is the adjective, which means choice. are already in use in a political sense, that is, in reference to elections. And in every case, it is a matter of electing people to perform a certain task or administer a certain office. It is the election itself which makes it possible for him, that person, that is the one who is elected, Uh, to take up his function and which at the same time lays an obligation upon him. So it is always accompanied by some kind of obligation or task concerned with the well-being of all the other members of the community. So what is he trying to tell us here? Is that he's saying that by the time of Plato, there came about democracy. Elections began with Greece in the sense that we know it today. And so what you were doing, you were simply casting a vote. You were choosing or electing out of a larger group, casting your vote for an individual or individuals. Then he also says 
In the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the verb, eklegomai, which means to commission or appoint in the classical Greek, predominantly evidences a meaning of the selection of the best or choice. Now that's important to understand what he's saying there. A selection of the best or the choice. Now you think about that in the sense of a a democracy. Isn't that the goal to select the best candidate, the choicest one, to be the representative of the people? He says it's used in such ways as the most beautiful of what is to be praised or something good from literary treasures. That is, you know, you select the choicest ones of literary treasures or whatever. Um, the emphasis is always in terms of electing someone or choosing someone is always on commissioning for service. So when you think about that very much, when you think about election, just using the word as we commonly see it in our English Bible, especially in the King James, but in many other translations as well, think of it as by nature. Would you not be choosing or electing the very best? Does that then not represent a choice based on criteria? Now, when you read most of the arguments about election and predestination and and so on, and the argument between those that are predestined for heaven and those predestined for hell and so on, you get the idea that it was, from our standpoint at least, and even maybe from God's, it was an arbitrary thing. Because if you search the scriptures for a reason why God elected or chose, you can't come up with anything as to a reason, a basis. In other words, upon what basis did he make his choice? Well, as we're looking at the usages of these words in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament... I'm just telling you ahead of time, we're going to find that the choice was based on criteria. In these cases where these words are used, it is is because of quality or serviceability or usefulness. So, for instance, Joshua commissioned an army or a general or an officer in Israel might choose certain select people out of an army for a particular task, a particular job to be done. And when you think about that, then you realize that he wouldn't just arbitrarily say, well, you, 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 or let's draw straws. And no, a sergeant or a lieutenant or a general, or whoever made the choice, would make his choice based on who was the best, who was the most usefully trained, who could provide the best service in this given situation. Now, um, So I said, this is kind of boring to me. I'm sifting through notes here. So our, our real key idea here, both, both in Hebrew and the Septuagint, is simply on this. It is God's selecting or setting apart qualified people to fulfill some commission or office. As a matter of fact... With that in mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. And we're going to look at something here that I think that would be very helpful to us. While you're looking, you might remember that there are several 
people and ideas behind this idea of appointing or commissioning. You know, Moses appointed judges over Israel. Do you think he just said, ah, you guys go out and find somebody? No, he looked for qualified people. People who had the ability to lead. He chose for the Levitical priesthood. There was a, a, a commissioning of Israel, the nation themselves, as God's unique chosen people. In here, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now this is commonly looked upon as a messianic verse. It's about the Messiah. My servant. My elect. What does he mean here? Well, if we take this word elect as we've just spoken of it, that you choose someone out of a larger group of people, as you would say, choosing a small contingency of soldiers out of a larger army for a a certain task. You know, you could think of the SEAL team. You could think of the Green Berets. You know, you could think of some special task that they were selected for. And ask yourself, does that fit when it comes to the Lord's Messiah? Did he look out over a vast array of people and say, I'm going to select him. I'm going to choose that one. Doesn't make any sense, does it? The better understanding, then, is to see this word elect as God's choice one. His choice one, as some translations render it. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my choice one, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And if you understand a verse such as this that way, then it makes a lot more sense when we come to the New Testament and we begin to study that same word, election. All right, because that's the adjective. You know, the adjective is describing him as the choice one. If we look then at, um, well, here, the, the theological word book of the Old Testament makes this statement. In the Old Testament, choice is always the action of God, of his grace, and always contains a mission for man. And only out of the mission can man comprehend the choice of God. In any case, in the Old Testament, bakir, which is the Old Test or the Hebrew word, is used not to describe that which constitutes the basic relationship between God and His people, but to denote that which results from His basic relationship, from this basic relationship. I'm sorry. So, consequently. What do we say about that then? It is important to note, however, that it always involves a careful, well-thought-out choice. In all of these cases, serviceability rather than simple arbitrariness is at the heart of the choosing. So when you go through the Old Testament and you read about all those places where God chose or God elected They're saying the very fundamental foundational meaning of the word is God chose on the basis of something. And that basis was usefulness, serviceability, qualifications, 
were they qualified to be chosen? He didn't just arbitrarily pick somebody. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Now, I'm just throwing these out here. You don't have to worry about them for now. But it also says this. The adjective connotes a choosing that which is choice or excellent. So you see where we get the word, the idea of choice. Which is desired or costly. What is desired or costly? What is costly in the concept of the pure? And it also emphasizes the choice or excellent element. Um, it is choice, select, costly, sterling, purified, profitable, best of its kind, of top quality. Well, all of those would fit the Lord Jesus Christ and God's choice of him. So here's what he's saying then to sum it up. The translators should have referred to Christ as the choice one. And that makes sense. Okay. We want to go to the New Testament now. That's just a brief summary, believe me, of the Old Testament and what it says there. The New Testament words mean, in sum, same thing as the Old Testament words. You have the the um, noun, the verb, the adjective, meaning. The commissioning or appointing of a, and the choice one and the selecting out. By the way, there's another good example. You, you think about uh, little league teams or soccer teams with young people. And at the end of the season, they have what they call a select team. And oftentimes they will pick out then, select the best, most qualified of the players, and then they will travel. And they will go to Nashville, Knoxville, Atlanta, or wherever, and play the select teams, the best of the best there. In our local paper, you've been seeing the best of the best. Fill your choice out. Pick your best dentist, your best realtor, you know, your best restaurant, da-da-da-da, the best of the best. There's nothing unusual about those things. But what my point is, is that none of this is arbitrary. You make your choice based on something qualitative, some reason. Um, Let's look at... um, Luke chapter 9 and verse 35. We'll take some time to look at a few passages here that I think help us to see this. Now, if you have King James, you'll be um, at a little disadvantage. There's a textual difference or variation here. If you had Mary's New American Standard, then you'd be able to read it just like she'll be reading it. But notice what the verse says there. And there came a voice out of the clouds saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. But the New American says something a little different. It says, This is my son, my chosen one, or my choice one, hear him. Luke 9.35. Luke 9.35. Now, of course, if you go to the other passages where this verse is used, Matthew 3, 17, Matthew 17, 5, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, they do all say, beloved son there. But if you even give that a moment's thought, my beloved son, and think about, my choice son, that when God said, this is my beloved son, then you carry the idea of, or the connotation of choice along with that, even for us in the word beloved. He is my choice son, my beloved one. Hear him. All right. Look at um, First Peter. Well, let's see. Yeah. First Peter chapter 2. 
and verses 4 and 6. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 and 6. Now here, Peter's writing and telling us concerning our walk and growth as a Christian. He says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. Or, as we've been saying so far, but choice. Or, as some translate it, the choice one. Of God or God's choice one and precious. And if you look at verse uh, 9, you'll see there it says, But you are a chosen generation, a choice generation. Language that was borrowed from the Old Testament. A choice generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. So he's speaking corporately here, of course, of the church, not individually, but choice in the sense of qualitative, the best, superlative. If you look at, oh my, let's see here. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. I think I want to look at that. No, I don't. Um... Okay, let's go back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Now this is a, just one example of a passage where we, we see a phrase that is used frequently in the scriptures. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 22 and in verses 1 through 14. Now, we don't have time, of course, to go through all the scriptures there, but you'll notice just a few things. Number one, it's about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So that sets the scene for us, what's going on here. And you'll notice that he says, look at the words in verse 3, Call and bidden. In verse 4, he says, And he sent forth other slaves, saying, Tell them which are bidden or invited. All the same word. Tell them which are in, who have been invited. Or invite them which have been invited. Tell them which have been invited. Verse 8, the wedding is ready, but they which were invited were not worthy. Now, there was an, so there was a wedding invitation gone out. And you'll notice in verse 8, he says, they were not ready. Or, uh, excuse me, worthy. Not worthy. So you see something there of qualitativeness. They weren't worthy. And if you look at verse 5, you'll notice what they did. They made light of it, made light of the wedding, made light of the invitation to come to the king's son's wedding. And so, being angry, he destroyed them, burned up their city, And then in verse 9, he said to go, therefore, into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid or invite to the marriage. And so those 
slaves went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now notice here that it was both good and bad. Everybody was allowed to come. Whoever they could find off the streets, bring them into the wedding. And so the king comes in to see the guests, and he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having on a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, we've been through this at least one other time that I know of, but there's two words here that are negatives. In verse 11, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now that word there is the word OU, and it simply means an observation. The king walks in, he looks out and views the wedding guests, and he just notices there's a guy without a, a wedding garment on. But then, in verse 12, he says, And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having on a wedding garment? And that's the Greek word, may. That's M-E with an accent mark on it, may. And that is a word of willfulness. Why? In other words, he's just just asking him, why did you willfully choose to come into my wedding party and not have on the right wedding garment or a wedding garment, period? And the guy's speechless. He has nothing to say. And so the consequence of that then is he's cast into the outer darkness, he says. Take him out. Not like a mob would say, take him out, but take him outdoors and put him out in the dark. And notice then the summation of that in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. One wants to think about something here. If we take the, 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 the standard rendering of the word chosen, if you go back up to verse 9... He says, go ye into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, invite to the marriage. None of those were chosen. Not a one. He just, they just went out and invited everybody and said, hey, y'all, y'all come. Just like you are. Come on into the wedding. But if you look at this as choice... Many are called, many are invited, but few are choice. Few are the best. Few fit the qualifications of the king. Now, moving on. Um, If we look at a couple other passages here, because we're going to run out of time. Matter of fact, I'm going to Go jump ahead a little bit here. Let's look at Mark chapter 13 and verse 20. So you'll just move to the right a couple of passages. Mark chapter thir- or, uh, chapters. Mark chapter 13, verse 20. And you'll see these words used twice in this one verse. It says in verse 20, And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen. He has shortened the days. If we understand the word elect as choice ones, and the word chosen as those commissioned, or appointed, which is the fundamental meaning of those words, then you'd read it like this. 
And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the chosen one's sake, whom he hath commissioned, he hath shortened the days. In other words, God commissioned certain choice ones for a particular service. All right. Let's go to back to first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one and verses one and two. And I hope you're, you begin to see a pattern about who the choice ones are and what God has chosen. His choice ones, his choice people. In the, verse 1 it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. What do we make of a passage like this? Well, the first thing I would tell you is that you'll see in verse 2 it says elect according to. But if you look in the Greek text, the word elect comes in front of the word strangers. So if you read it this way, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect strangers, or the chosen pilgrims. Or, if you look at it the way we've been speaking of so far, the choice pilgrims. So here you have these Jewish believers who have been scattered, the diaspora. They've been scattered out from Jerusalem, from Israel, and they're in varying countries around where Peter's writing to them. He names them here in verse 1. To the choice pilgrims scattered throughout these various countries. And they are according to the foreknowledge of God. So what is my point there? Is that not that God elected them arbitrarily at some point in history before the foundation of the world, but rather God foreknew or knew who these would be, these choice ones. And he chose them accordingly. His choice pilgrims. In other words, they were already believers when they became God's choice ones because they were suffering on behalf of Christ. And you'll notice that he says, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. Now, I want to look at another example. Um, Let's move down to, um, well, let's just, since we're here close by, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, it's so tempting to want to go through this whole passage here because it's an awesome thing where Peter sets forth the calling of a Christian and believers in what they are to do in growth and maturity as they progress towards a goal. And that is the entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But you'll notice in, uh, in verse 10, well, in, in verses 5 through 8, he gives you this long list of things that we were, are to add to our faith. Then in verse 9, he talks about those who lack those things. If we don't add those things to our faith, 
He that lacks these things is blind, cannot see, and so on. Verse 10, wherefore, the rather, he says, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Or another way to state it is your calling and choice sure. That is to say, if God made his calling upon you and his choice of you upon some basis of serviceability or usefulness or some quality he saw or sees in you, then he's saying, make that more sure. Not because, in other words, think about it. If God arbitrarily, before the foundation of the world, chose certain ones to be saved, then how can you be more diligent to make any sure than what God can do and he, if he makes the choice himself. You can't do it. I mean, he, he's, he's made the choice. It, it's done. But it's because he makes his choice ones because of something he sees in them and they are to make it more sure. And if you do these things, he says, you shall never fall. You'll never stumble. And by the way, that word never fall or never stumble carries with it the connotation or the idea of a stumbling that has a finality to it. You fall and you can't get back up. Okay. I got to move on to the Apostle Paul here and we're not even going to make it very far. So let me just pick up a couple choice passages here. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. I'm going to have to skip over a whole bunch of things. But that's okay. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 There... A little short verse, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, there are several translations that look at it this way. Knowing, brethren, beloved, God's choice of you. His choice of you. Look look at another one. Let's, Let's... get a couple more here so we we catch what he's saying uh, let's go to uh, let's skip that one there let's go to oh yeah Romans 8 Romans chapter 8 again an awesome passage there verse 31 says Romans 8, verse 31 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's choice ones? It is God that justifies it is God's choice ones who's going to lay a charge against them well of course in a a rhetorical question you know you expect the obvious answer and the obvious answer is nobody nobody's going to lay a charge against God's choice ones you remember at the very beginning of that same chapter in verse 1 he says there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And if we look at uh, also, I won't belabor the point too much there farther. Let me look at, um, let's look at Romans. Oh, I don't know which one I want to go. Romans 9. Just turn a chapter over. I think we've got a 
How about 11? Verse 28. Now, of course, Paul's arguing here for the setting aside of Israel and the bringing in of the church. And he says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. And if we look at that word election there as regarding, but as touching or as regarding the choice, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. That is Israel. As touching his choice. And then I want to do one last one. Look at Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Or excuse me, verse, or is it 12 or 10? I don't remember now. Verse 10. Where Paul, of course, writing to Timothy, says, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, or the choice ones. That's how Robert Young, in his literal translation, renders it. Matter of fact, if you look at his translation, he's almost consistent always to render it choice ones. Therefore, I endure all things for the choice ones' sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Or the literal rendering there would be with glory for the age. He did it with something in view. Glory for the age, the choice one's sakes. And all I've been trying to show, and it's been very meager because here we are, it's a quarter till already, um, is simply to show this, is that election or God's choosing was not on some arbitrary basis. It had a purpose behind it. And it had the idea, as we saw in the meaning of the word, the idea of a setting apart or a commissioning or an appointing for a particular service. It has something to do after a person has been saved. You are chosen in Christ Jesus or made choice. He made his choice in him. It's the same idea that you see in Ephesians 1.4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. It's not the idea of saved and lost at all, but it has everything in the world to do with God's choice. I hope you see that if you have come to the knowledge of Christ and you understand the gospel as it is given in the New Testament, the gospel of the kingdom, and God's calling with regard to that gospel and what is yet to come in the Messiah's kingdom, then know that it was Choice on his part. He made you choice, a choice person, a choice selection, in other words. You were selected out of a larger group, a selection of his choice ones or his best ones or what other superlative adjectives we could add to that. 
to give us a better understanding of what it means to be one of God's choice ones. And I hope that that gives you cause for encouragement to march forward with strength, with, with purpose and faith, and not giving up because he has his hand upon you. He's working in you. He is moving you, producing in you maturity as long as we are walking in obedience. He can work with us and he will work that out in us and fulfill what he's called us to be and to do. His choice ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a difficult subject, but I rejoice in the confidence and the joy that it brought to my heart to realize exactly what it is that you do for us and what you have done and what you are working in us. And that our obedience to you means something to you. It means you can work out what you've called us to do. We're also reminded of the scriptures that tell us that those who walk disobediently, you disapprove of and you reject. And that just because you've chosen us, it's not a guarantee that we're going to accomplish the end and reach the goal, the salvation of our souls. So let us, I pray, comprehend these things. Let your spirit move in our hearts to enlighten us. To help us to see the truth of what you've given us in your word, that you are working in and through those obedient disciples to bring them to the desired end. And we want to be a part of that, Father. We want to see you working through us to accomplish what you desire in us so that that day will come when we will receive that, that joyful, abundant, rich welcome into your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.